to the very first renaissance mat of season 3. For a little series that started all the way back in season 1, it was actually my third solo episode for this podcast, we're still going strong two seasons later and I've got no plans on stopping anytime soon. So, if you're new, these episodes are my true deep dive episodes, going through the history, relevance, and legacy of anything from pieces of media to historical figures. And today's deep dive has been cooking for some time. When I was developing the script for my Best Cartoons of the 2000s episode, a personal favorite of mine from Season 2 if you haven't already listened to it, I stumbled upon some super old memories in the form of cartoons I hadn't thought about in more than 10 years. See, when Americans like us think of the best channels to find cartoons, especially us late 90s kids, we usually settle upon three distinct networks, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, and Disney Channel. Heck, the geeks and I discussed as much in our season premiere when we compared and contrasted these three heavy hitters, their pros, their cons, their all-star shows, their forgettable, bland, or just plain awful shows and decisions. But what if I told you that there's a secret fourth channel for cartoons that late 90s kids and late 2000s kids alike may have enjoyed? A channel that you've probably forgotten all about or maybe never even heard of. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're marching through the life and times of... Discovery Kids. Let's get into it. Our story begins in 1996. Now, if you haven't heard of Discovery Kids, there's a passing chance you've at least heard of the Discovery Channel. For nerds like me, the Discovery Channel was always a great place to find documentaries about history, biology, technology, and other scientific ideas. And the network was cemented alongside the History Channel and Animal Planet as one of the tenets that made me the nerd I am today. But in 1996, the Discovery Channel and the people behind its parent company... Discovery Incorporated, looked around at the landscape of network television. It stands to reason that most children were not like me, watching documentaries with great interests under the Discovery Channel, and instead sought out goofy and wholesome cartoons, the likes of which were starting to get very popular on the budding channels of Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, and Disney Channel in the mid to late 90s. So Discovery Inc. launched a new network, Discovery Kids, which attempted to put its scientific prowess in a form children could enjoy. Unfortunately, when giving the options of watching Acorn the Nature Nut explore different kinds of insects, and watching Ren beat Stimpy to a pulp with a wooden mallet, most children went with the latter option. And from 1996 to 2001, Discovery Kids only found very limited success. In 2001, Discovery Inc. partnered with NBC to try and drum up views. They ordered a programming block on the much more famous NBC network to try and entice children and their families into catching their content and following it back to Discovery Kids. This included full-on cartoons, which we'll get to very soon, as well as semi-dramatic shows that played around with sitcom formats. I didn't know about any of these until doing my research, since most live-action stuff didn't catch my eye as a kid, but these included some fairly well-known and even well-received shows, including Darcy's Wild Life, a show about a spoiled teenager whose rich family moves to an average suburban town where she becomes a veterinarian and learns about animals, Darcy's Wild Life was made by Stan Rogow, better known as the brain behind Lizzie McGuire. Rogow would team up with DJ McHale, who masterminded the infamous Are You Afraid of the Dark, to make Flight 29 Down for Discovery Kids, a show about a group of teens surviving a plane crash on a deserted island. 
Again, I've never seen it, but I imagine it's a lot less depressing than Lord of the Flies. Discovery Kids also got content from similar networks such as Animal Planet to air on their NBC block. The most famous of these was The Croc Files, a spin-off of Steve Irwin's legendary show, The Crocodile Hunter. Another major success story from this NBC programming block was the sci-fi show Strange Days at Blake Holsey High. This show revolved around a fairly straightforward group of high schoolers who discover that their high school is centered on top of an interdimensional wormhole, which can connect to any point in the past or future, and which has a mental effect on those exposed to it. Apparently, this show, which first aired in 2002, was a hit, and aired on different networks around the world. And with the success of shows like Strange Days, the Discovery Kids NBC programming block proved to be a success as well, growing the viewer base of Discovery Kids from around 15 million to somewhere in the ballpark of 45 million homes. And this is when things really get interesting, because this is where we start to see the premieres of cartoons and shows that I really wanted to talk about, since these were the ones I watched as a kid. The quirk about Discovery Kids cartoons in this era is that they always had something to teach you, whether it be about biology, history, space, or even dinosaurs. I can't say I ever really noticed it as a kid, which either means many of these shows did a great job hiding it, or I was too enamored by the bright cartoon characters, and maybe too nerdy, to notice or care. But I mentioned dinosaurs specifically because this early show was arguably the network's most recognizable IP from this era, Walking with Dinosaurs. Well, technically not Walking with Dinosaurs itself. See, Walking with Dinosaurs was a groundbreaking BBC miniseries that turned the classic animal documentary on its head by focusing on dinosaurs instead of lions and zebras. The series has spawned spin-off documentaries about other prehistoric animals and has won a slate of awards. Since BBC is a British network, and Walking with Dinosaurs was made in England, when the time came to bring the show to American households, the honor fell upon the Discovery Channel. Walking with Dinosaurs premiered in the US in 2000, and a few years later, Discovery Kids adapted the source material into a miniseries geared towards younger audiences. Content such as dinosaurs obliterating and devouring each other was removed, and the hoity-toity British narration of Kenneth Branagh was replaced with that of American actors Ben Stiller and Christian Slater in the first and second season, respectively. The show was also interspersed with quiz questions, similar to the Who's That Pokemon segments before and after commercial breaks on the Pokemon anime, where it asked you about dinosaurs that were featured in each episode. Somehow this show escaped my consciousness as a kid. Maybe it just wasn't cartoony enough for me, maybe it didn't air enough reruns and I got into the network too late, I don't really know, but... Anyway, what's important to note is that the early to mid-2000s saw Discovery Kids play around with cartoons in a way it never had before. And this began in 2003, with the arrival of two cartoons. Seriously, they both aired on the same exact day, November 1st, 2003. These shows were Tuttenstein and Kenny the Shark. I guess if you want to give the earlier premiere to somebody, you have to go with Kenny the Shark, as apparently he had been a recurring character in shorts that would air on Discovery Kids in between shows in the late 90s when the network was just starting out. So, we'll talk about Kenny the Shark first. Kenny the Shark followed the adventures of a tiger shark named Kenny, who used to live in the sea, but he had another plan, so he packed up all his things and he moved himself to land. Jeez, nearly 20 years later, and I still remember that show's killer theme song. Go figure. Anyway, Kenny moves himself to land, where he can walk around without the need of water, because this is a cartoon. He's adopted by Kat, a young girl searching for a pet, and goes on to live with her and her family, which consisted of her baby brother, her mom, and her dad, who fills almost a Eustace from Courage the Cowardly Dog-like role, though definitely toned down. 
always getting annoyed with the antics that come when you have a massive shark living in your home and eating all your food. <laughs> Other major characters included Cat's best friend Oscar, who is a descendant of the Mayans and likes to share facts about Mayan culture, as well as Oscar's dog Marty, who is Kenny's best animal friend. The show takes place in the real-life small town of Tiburon, California, named for the word shark, so, you know, go figure. And sees Kenny and Cat going on adventures, usually consisting of Kenny getting into shark-like antics, like overcoming his intense desire to eat seals. I'm not kidding. Though this is the earliest cartoon to premiere out of any of the Discovery Kids cartoons, I feel like this is the one I remember the best. I think it must have aired reruns later in the 2000s. This show was interspersed with fun facts about sharks and other marine life, which were usually pretty cool and often tied to the theme of the episode. Again, this is a commandment of Discovery Kids cartoons at the time. You're always learning something about science, whether you know it or not. On the same day Kenny the Shark aired, Discovery Kids also debuted Tuttenstein. This show followed the adventures of a young mummy, Tuttenstein, Tut for short, who had previously been a boy pharaoh in ancient Egypt until dying young and being reawakened thousands of years later in a museum. Kind of dark <laughs> when I say it out loud. Anyway, he's joined by a middle schooler named Cleo, who happened to be at the museum when Totenstein was reawakened. Together, they fight against the ancient Egyptian god Set, who is trying to capture Totenstein's scepter, which would grant him power over the world. Of course, there are all sorts of other misadventures, of which I don't recall since I haven't watched the show in 15 years, but that's the overall story. Totenstein was developed for TV by Jay Stevens, who Cartoon Network fans might recognize as the guy behind The Secret Saturdays. Character design was done by Phil Barlow, who I only bring up because he's also the guy who did the character design for Adam Sandler's meme-filled Eight Crazy Nights the very year before. Anyway, rather predictably, Totenstein's educational gimmick is about ancient Egypt. And boy, does this show know what it's talking about. Apparently, Totenstein made an attempt to be as historically accurate as possible. The show even had an Egyptologist on the payroll so that they could make sure things didn't get too unrealistic, which is kind of crazy to think about. This paid off, though, as Tutenstein was nominated for three daytime Emmys during its run and won two of them. Critics highlighted the show's educational approach that still kept things fun for kids. All in all, I'm sure this would be a very satisfying cartoons for nerdy kids to watch. And speaking of history nerds, the next cartoon to talk about is the Time Warp Trio, which aired in 2005 and was created by John Szyzeka, I think he's Polish, I'm sorry I butchered that, from his children's book series of the same name. This seems to be one of the better-known Discovery Kids shows from this era as well. I've, I've definitely seen this one talked about online. The Time Warp Trio follows a trio that warps through time. Moving on to the next show. No, okay, <laughs> seriously. So Joe is a young boy passionate about becoming a magician, inspired by his magician uncle. One day, his uncle gives him a magic book, which takes Joe and his two best friends, the nerdy worrywart Sam and the sporty jock Fred, back to various points in time where they would hang out with or run away from Various historical figures. At some point in the series, the trio runs into their great-great-granddaughters from the year 2105, who also warp through time. Joe's other uncle, the evil Uncle Mad Jack, constantly plans to steal the book and its powers away from the group, a fate the trio must avoid at all costs. Sometimes the show would mix it up, having episodes about the trio of great-granddaughters, and sometimes mixing and matching members of each trio together for different misadventures. As to be expected, the show was great for history lovers. In fact, I remember my 6th grade teacher showing us an episode of the Time Warp Trio in class. I believe it was the one where the characters traveled to ancient Greece, because I, I remember them hanging out with Plato, although that might have just been another memory. I don't know, another show, or another episode, excuse me. I remember being excited, 
as this show had actually had some lore and an overarching story. In the episode we watched in class, Joe's great-granddaughter had to tell him a secret, but then gets cut off when she warps through time. I remember being like, what? What happens next? What was she gonna say? Ah, poor young Matt. Anyway, something I never knew about this show until researching it for this episode is that it was a Canadian cartoon, and thus features a lot of the same voice cast as the Total Drama franchise, which you know, I love. Fred is voiced by the legendary Scott McCord, voice of Jacques the Ice Dancer, Brody the Surfer Dude in the Redonkulous Race, and Trent, and obviously Owen in the original series. The Nerdy Sam is voiced by Darren Frost, who would voice one of the stepbrothers in the Redonkulous Race, and, believe it or not, Baby Harold <laughs> in Total Drama-rama. As for the great-granddaughters, Fred's granddaughter, Freddy, how clever, is voiced by Sunday Muse, voice of Ella in Total Drama Pocket 2 Island, while Sam's granddaughter, named Samantha, again, how clever, is voiced by Lori Elliott, Total Drama writer since World Tour, and voice of Joe. Joe from Total Drama, not Joe from Time Warp Trio. I think I've gone off on a tangent and probably confused everyone. Anyway... The overarching story of the Time Warp Trio spoke of a prophesied battle of time and space between Joe's kind magician uncle and Joe's evil wizard uncle, but sadly the show was not picked up for a second season and ended with a cliffhanger. Again, this is a great show for the young history lover, I must say. Discovery Kids was really doing well at this point. In 2006, they declined to renew their contract with NBC for the Discovery Kids programming block, as they felt they had enough viewers to sustain themselves without the life preserver at NBC. Perhaps it was because things were going so well, but I feel like this was the point that Discovery Kids seemed to get a little more bold in its cartoon choices. The next and final three cartoons I have to talk about aren't as clearly educational as Teutonstein, Kenny the Shark, or the Time Warp Trio, although I may just be saying that because I don't remember them all that well. But next down memory lane, and next chronologically in the cartoons put out by Discovery Kids, we have Growing Up Creepy, which premiered in 2006. Arguably our weirdest premise yet, Growing Up Creepy sees a baby girl abandoned on the doorstep of a mansion populated entirely by bugs, who then adopt her and raise her as their own. The girl, Creepy, short for Creepella, <laughs> must attempt to live an average life and go to an average school while never letting her secret life get found out or her home would probably be fumigated. Creepy is joined in her misadventures by her two troublemaking bug brothers, Nat and Polly, her perky neighbor, Chris Alice, get it? Chris, Alice, Chrysalis, bug puns, and her best friend Budge, who is voiced by Richard Yearwood, aka Donkey Kong from the infamous Donkey Kong Country cartoon. I doubt I'd ever be able to unhear that if I were to watch an episode of Growing Up Creepy today, uh, seeing as the Donkey Kong Country cartoon has been memed to death. <laughs> this show was unique not only for its premise, but also its art style. Everything's kind of dark, Almost reminded you of Invader Zim with the color palette and janky angular characters. Despite her bright rainbow hair, Creepy herself is clearly reminiscent of goth culture, which was intensely popular in the mid-2000s. Actually, the more I think about it, I believe this show was educational. I'm pretty sure each episode had Creepy dealing with a new kind of bug that she would have to save or protect or discover or whatever, and the viewers would learn information about whatever kind of bug that was. As you may or may not know, I freaking can't stand bugs. So maybe I should have watched this show more during my formative years. Oh well. As I said, this show aired in 2006, a year that also saw the tragic death of naturalist Steve Irwin in a freak stingray act. Irwin and his croc files were incredibly important to the budding Discovery kids, and the network continued his legacy with the 2007 show Bindi the Jungle Girl. I wasn't originally going to go too in-depth on this one since it is live action and I'm supposed to be talking about the cartoons I grew up with, but 
I did catch this show a few times when I was little. It follows Bindi Irwin, Steve Irwin's daughter, showcasing animals of the world and their importance. Kind of like a live-action Go Diego Go, in a way. Irwin's family and close friends also appeared on the show, as well as some archived footage of Steve Irwin himself. It must have been a very bittersweet show, in retrospect, having a young girl continuing her father's legacy only a year after his untimely passing, but I'm sure it would have done Steve proud. Going back to cartoons, there's two more I can still think to mention. One of them is The Future is Wild, a 2007 animated series inspired by the 2002 documentary miniseries of the same name. The documentary looked at what would happen to Earth if humans went extinct or suddenly abandoned the planet, and this was the premise the show took as well, following a group of teenagers tasked with researching and studying the abandoned Earth and the various plants and animals that it now contains. Apparently, the documentary itself was well-received enough to generate merchandise and museum exhibits of the various fictional animals that it portrayed, so that's pretty cool. I suppose the show tried to replicate that success. The reason I fly through this one is because I honestly don't remember even watching it. It did air right around the time I was moving on from Discovery Kids. Maybe it aired during a time of the day where I was busy or doing something else. I don't really know. It's possible that it just didn't appeal to me. It is worth noting, however, that this is the only Discovery Kids cartoon to utilize CGI animation. So that's pretty cool. Years after, I watched the History Channel documentary series Life After People, which looks at the same question, what would happen to Earth if humanity disappeared, but answers it more realistically instead of focusing on the cool sci-fi animals that would evolve. Life After People was cool, but maybe I should give the Future's Wild documentary a watch because it does sound pretty cool too. Probably never going to touch the the animated series, though. Anyway, the final cartoon to discuss from this era is quite possibly the most bizarre and most ridiculous one yet. Grossology aired on Discovery Kids in 2007. Loosely based on the book series of the same name, Grossology follows Ty and Abby, a brother and sister who also happen to be crime-fighting secret agents. They work for the Bureau of Grossology, which is sort of like the FBI, but much more gross. They investigate and fight against criminals who use gross methods to achieve their gross goals. Gross. The smart scientist Ty and the charismatic fighter Abby team up to fight villains and threats which involve scabs, boils, pink eye, foot fungus, mucus, and, of course, farts. Sorry to anyone who was eating while listening to this. (laughs) Grossology is definitely not the kind of show to turn on for your kid while you're eating breakfast, that's for sure. Still, it wasn't without its charm, from what I recall. Why I watched this show and not The Future is Wild, (laughs) I couldn't say. But Grossology is definitely one of those cartoons I'm sure plenty of people thought they'd created in a fever dream. Well, that takes us to the end of the original Discovery Kids cartoons. And, you might think, to the end of this episode. But, technically speaking, Discovery Kids wasn't done yet. And neither am I. See, even though 2007 marks the end of my time watching Discovery Kids cartoons, and really watching the network as a whole for the most part, and it was kind of the end of the OG cartoons that I planned on talking about, the channel went on to make a major decision that would give them more views than they ever thought possible. And it all starts with a massive toy company called Hasbro. Discovery Kids had been doing decently in the 2000s, but when Grossology and Growing Up Creepy were forced to compete with the likes of Chowder, Spongebob, Phineas and Ferb, and Avatar The Last Airbender, it was clear that they were still losing the competition. Discovery Inc. wanted to see their children's channel become truly great, and so they struck a deal with Hasbro. Hasbro would give Discovery Kids a slew of new IPs to work with, from their own merchandise and collection, and Discovery Kids would give these IPs publicity and attention with new shows. It was a mutually beneficial agreement, and one that was far more successful than possibly either had bargained. So, in the year 2010, Hasbro and Discovery Inc. officially launched a joint partnership, and the channel, Discovery Kids, had its name changed to The Hub sometimes called Hub Network. 
I'm sure there's a lot of you guys who were born later who, you know, were listening to this like, ah, Discovery Kids, I never heard of it. Well, what? And then when I said The Hub, you were like, oh, I've heard of that. Anyway, let's move on to your era then. With the arrival of a new decade, The Hub was out of the gate with new content based on Hasbro properties. Family Game Night, based on Hasbro board game and video game of the same name, premiered in October 2010 and remained a mainstay on The Hub in the years after. It was a fairly straightforward game show in which families competed in goofy challenges, utilizing props from the Monopoly games, such as go-to-jail cards, which could hinder a team's success. A cute idea. Probably a fun game show to watch if you're into that kind of thing. Did decently well, too, from what I gather. But we're here to talk about the cartoons, right? Well, The Hub ordered two series based on Hasbro properties, which aired in 2010. In a delightful coincidence, both of these two cartoons aired on the same day, just as Tootenstein and Kenny the Shark had done seven years later. Actually, Family Game Night also premiered on the same day. I guess the whole Hub Network just started on October 10th, 2010. The first of these two cartoons was Pound Puppies, based on the popular plush toy product from the 80s, which actually had an animated series of its own at the time. The 2010 animated series followed a group of dogs at a shelter, who, unbeknownst to the human operators, secretly orchestrate nearly every dog adoption that takes place. Their goal is to find a home for every puppy who comes to the shelter, and most of the series revolves around this mission, with a new puppy each day. A lot of the comedy from this show came from the personality of the different dogs clashing as the group would try and help puppies get adopted. The only part of the show I remember is the big sheepdog voiced by John DiMaggio, aka Bender from Futurama, and, around the same exact time as Pound Puppies, Jake the Dog from Adventure Time. So I guess 2010 was DiMaggio's year of the dog. <laughs> this show was harmless and fun, I'm sure. I, I actually vaguely remember watching the premiere, maybe one or two other odd episodes, but that's about the extent of my personal knowledge. On the same day Pound Puppies premiered, a second cartoon based on Hasbro Properties aired, its first of many episodes, My Little Pony. More specifically, this series was called My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, to differentiate it from the earlier My Little Pony cartoons. If you haven't spent a day on the internet through the 2010s, let me tell you this. My Little Pony Friendship is Magic was the hub's golden goose, the show that caused many people to rank this network along the likes of Cartoon Network, Disney Channel, and Nickelodeon. This was probably aided by the fact that Friendship is Magic aired around the time that Nickelodeon was truly marching towards complete irrelevance. <laughs> so I think a lot of cartoon fans were looking for something new. Anyway, yeah, I, I got on the internet in full for the first time around 2011-2012, so I definitely remember the era where the internet would not shut up about My Little Pony. For some reason, despite the entirely female lead cast of My Little Pony and its very pink and purple unicorn and pegasus aesthetic, I'll get to the show's plot itself in a minute, My Little Pony exploded in popularity among teenagers and young adults, including a ton of dudes. Nobody could have seen that one coming. Although I suppose there were some signs. For one, Friendship is Magic was headlined by Lauren Faust, who worked on the Powerpuff Girls and Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, and who's married to Craig McCracken, the creator of those two shows. Faust was arguably the highest profile creator to make a cartoon for this channel in its 15-year history up to that point. Plus, My Little Pony had already been one of Hasbro's most successful products prior to the show, so I guess it made sense it was going to generate some success but nothing like what it ended up receiving. The show itself followed the adventures of six ponies, two unicorns, two pegasuses, pegasi, <laughs> and two earth ponies, meaning ponies that aren't unicorns or pegasi. This group of six would go on various adventures, learning about friendship, fighting against villains, and singing songs, more or less what you'd expect from a show called My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. The characters each had their own personalities, and a lot of these standalone episodes about friendship seemed to center around characters with different personalities clashing, such as the boastful Rainbow Dash and the meek Fluttershy being forced to interact and get closer. Kind of like how Pound Puppies works, too, right? And all these personalities clash. As with Pound Puppies, this 
cartoon aired at a time where I really wasn't interested in hub cartoons. Plus, I mean, I was under the impression that this is a girl's show. <laughs> Apparently, according to the internet, I'm wrong. But a combination of excited young girls and unexpected male fans caused Friendship is Magic to beat its own record time after time as the most successful show The Hub ever aired. Despite the fact that Faust left in the middle of the first season, each season only seemed to become more and more successful. Friendship is Magic spawned a spin-off series of movies during which the pony characters became human, probably as an excuse to sell human dolls in addition to the pony ones. Maybe I'm just being cynical. <laughs> Friendship is Magic also got a theatrical movie released in 2017, creatively titled My Little Pony, The Movie. And Friendship is Magic was so successful that, when the show ran its course, it was revived with a soft reboot, My Little Pony Pony Life, which featured the same main cast and same voice actresses. If that doesn't strike you as a big deal, recall that My Little Pony has seen various cartoons since the 80s, and nearly every reboot switches up the characters a bit. Friendship is Magic was so successful, however, that Hasbro did not allow that to happen. So Discovery had found its cash cow, its own Spongebob, if you will. Like I said, this caused many cartoon lovers to take the network seriously in the early 2010s. Again, I certainly remember the show generating a lot of buzz online. In 2011, The Hub would create another cartoon, a show that's one of my favorite cartoons of the whole decade, and just barely missed the list I made a while back since I haven't watched it in a long time, and I'm not huge on its animation quality. Still, it was worthy of an honorable mention. Ladies and gentlemen, let us talk about Dan Versus. Each episode of Dan Versus would have the grumpy, destitute Dan declare his hatred against an idea, a place, a thing, or a person. The episode would then dive into his schemes to get revenge on the object of his hatred, usually stringing along his affable but bored best friend Chris for the ride. Chris's wife, Elise, would either play a role in Dan's revenge scheme or get involved in a subplot revolving around her job as a secret agent. Typically, the minor annoyances that Dan hates so much turn out to be just as deep and complex as he first believed. Like in Dan vs. Stupidity, when he accused TV and the government of making everyone in America dumber, only to accidentally discover that this was because of secret European hackers trying to dumb down their competition. It's a silly, crazy show that feels much more like the natural progression from Kenny the Shark and Growing Up Creepy than a show that aired alongside Pound Puppies and My Little Pony. But maybe that's just because it's an independent property and not related to Hasbro. Dan vs. is a criminally underrated show, and it's the cartoon that caused me to take the hub seriously as an animation network. 2012 brought Littlest Pet Shop, which, upon my research, seems to be an attempt at creating Friendship is Magic 2.0. You know, take a cutesy Hasbro franchise, revitalize it, stuff it with a big cast of cutesy animated characters with fun dialogue and music, and try to appeal to all those middle-aged dudes who started watching your pony show. When I was really young, I actually did play with some of the Littlest Pet Shop toys. <laughs> embarrassingly I can admit but I have been clear on how obsessed I was with animals so the little hamsters and little doggies appealed to your little toddler Matt can't say that uh, this inspired me to watch Littlest Pet Shop when it released 10 years later, though. Although that also could have been because I was a freshman in high school and this was a cartoon about a little girl who plays with pets. From what I can gather, the story revolves around a girl named Blythe who moves to the big city in an apartment above a pet store slash pet daycare. She discovers that she can communicate with the pets and since she wants to be a fashion designer, she sews all sorts of costumes and accessories and decorations and whatnot for the Littlest Pet Shop to protect it from getting crushed by a corporate rival. And as you can imagine, she gets up to misadventures with the pets and whatnot. So, fun fact, I didn't know this. Blythe is actually a separate Hasbro product, a type of girl doll named Blythe, kind of like, you know, Barbie. This is Blythe. So Hasbro made the decision to combine these two IPs in one with this cartoon, combining Blythe and Littlest Pet Shop. Maybe they wanted to set up a Hasbro cinematic universe. I'm here for it. <laughs> anyway, the show was developed by Tim and Julie Cahill, 
the husband and wife writing team that previously created My Gym Partner's a Monkey for Cartoon Network, but also worked on other shows like Baby Looney Tunes and, tying it all back together, Tuttenstein. The voice cast for Littlest Pet Shop borrows many actresses from Friendship is Magic, including Blight's voice actress Ashley Ball and the voice actress for Pepper the Skunk, Tabitha St. Germain. Hope I'm saying that right. Which kind of furthers my theory that this was an attempt to uh, develop a sort of sequel or spiritual successor to My Little Pony. Russell the Hedgehog is voiced by none other than Samuel Vincent, voice actor of Crypto the Superdog, and perhaps more famously, Double D from Ed, Ed and Eddie. Kathleen Barr, who voices Kevin and Marie Kanker in Ed, Ed and Eddie, also provides voice work for Littlest Pet Shop, though from what I understand, she is also a star player in Friendship is Magic as well. Okay, that's about the last cartoon there is to talk about. Transformers, being a huge Hasbro property, Transformers also beat through some iterations during the hub's run, but none really worth talking about, and there also were a lot of conflicts with Cartoon Network over who gets to air what Transformers show. By 2014, the relationship between Discovery Inc. and Hasbro had soured somewhat. When the two teamed up to form the hub, Hasbro had really pushed out a lot of the content. Discovery Inc. had promised that Hasbro would contribute no more than 20% of all new content, but from what I've found, and from the major success stories of the hub, that really isn't true. I mean, I just mentioned Family Game Night, Pound Puppies, My Little Pony, Dan vs. Littlest Pet Shop, and Transformers. Only one of those six is not a Hasbro property. Regardless, by 2014, Discovery Inc. was really floundering. Many advertisers, such as Mattel, another major toy company, wouldn't buy advertising space on the hub because they didn't want to help their business rival Hasbro. The hub was bleeding money, therefore, and it was time to reanalyze the relationship between Discovery and Hasbro. Ultimately, both sides agreed things needed to change. Discovery and Hasbro both saw each other as money sponges, Discovery seeing Hasbro as a block for potential advertisers, and Hasbro seeing Discovery as a distraction from their toy business. The solution was to rebrand the hub as Discovery Family, a name much more in tune with the original Discovery Kids. Hasbro would still be involved. There's a reason why most of the shows mentioned continued on, even past 2014, and the Discovery Family rebranding particularly My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, which only ended, I believe, a few years ago. But I really couldn't find any examples of surprisingly successful new shows since 2014. Some Transformer stuff. Uh, after the original Littlest Pet Shop ended, they tried to reboot it again, only to have the reboot get canceled after a season. I'm sure I'm flying through shows right now that some people 10 years from now will cite as a key part of their childhood, but ultimately this episode was supposed to serve as a, my own walk down memory lane on which I invite you guys to join me. From the cheesy animation of shows such as the Time Warp Trio and Tuttenstein, which I loved as a kid, to the internet sensations of My Little Pony and Littlest Pet Shop, I remember the internet going wild over, Discovery Kids, just The Hub, Discovery Family, it doesn't really matter what you call it, it's an interesting network with a very interesting journey. Depending on which way you slice it, Discovery Kids was either a network that gave up on its plucky educational integrity to make glorified toy commercials, or a floundering channel barely staying above water until they struck gold with an important business partnership. From trying to produce educational shows that teach kids about history, biology, and science, to converting toy brands to extremely successful cartoons, Discovery Kids as it will always be known to me deep down, has had a wild ride in its adventures to try and catch up with Cartoon Network, Nick, and Disney Channel. They seem to have really hit a crossroads now, but the future could always be promising. Or wild. <laughs> when I have kids of my own, I'll be sure to show them a lot of the stuff I enjoyed when I was younger. I remember being a young boy, you know, waking up really early Saturday morning, turning on the TV, and, you know, marathoning through growing up creepy in Tuttenstein. And who knows? Maybe one of my kids will end up asking me to adopt a pet tiger shark. You just listened to an episode of Geeks Crossing. Were you a 90s or 2000s kid? 
Did you like Discovery or The Hub more than the other three major networks? And did I stir up memories with either generation of Discovery cartoons? I know I sure hadn't thought about these shows before doing my research, some of which I didn't even know about. Let me know the answer to these questions in our Discord. Link is in the description of this episode, as always. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Geeks Crossing, and continue to support us wherever you're listening to us right now, whether it be on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or on iHeartRadio. I'm Matt, and I don't care who the IRS sends, I'm not paying taxes! That was a quote from Dan Versus. Please do not actually contact the IRS. Thank you. Thank you.